the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back. Thursday, June 29th, 2023. On a day like today, I could just hug Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts. And striking down the race-based admissions policies at Harvard and the University of North Carolina, John Roberts reified and reaffirmed the point that Thurgood Marshall made in arguing Brown v. Board of Education in his brief to the court in 1953. And that John, excuse me, and that Justice John Marshall Harlan made in his dissent in Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896. In the former, Thurgood Marshall wrote, quote, distinctions by race are so evil, so arbitrary and so invidious that a state bound to guarantee the equal protection of the laws must not invoke them in any public sphere, close quote. In the Plessy case, John Marshall Harlan wrote in dissent, quote, In the eyes of the law, there is in this country no superior, dominant ruling class of citizens. There is no caste here. Our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. In respect of civil rights, all citizens are equal before the law. The humblest is the peer of the most powerful. The arbitrary separation of citizens on the basis of race is a badge of certitude, wholly inconsistent with the civil freedom and the equality before the law established by the Constitution. It cannot be justified upon any legal grounds. Close quote. Now, before I quote excerpts from John Roberts' majority opinion today, let me point out what a daisy cutter it all is to the narrative that America is a racist country or a systemically racist country a country that was founded on the grounds of repression in 1619 and not freedom and equality in 1776. That some engage or engaged in racism, including our universities until yesterday, does not make it right, but moreover does not make it consonant with our founding or our Constitution's ethos. The only way it does, the only way the 1619ers are right, is if you adopt the views of the minority part of this country, namely the slaveholding part from the 1900s, namely the Confeder- excuse me, the 19th century, namely the Confederacy, namely the history of America written by Roger B. Taney in the Dred Scott decision, a history we used to think was odious, but a history ironically embraced by the likes of Ibrahim Kendi and Nicole Hannah-Jones. It is the Confederates' view of the founding that they promote. Again, yes, we had slavery. Yes, we had a war over it. And those who fought against the Confederacy were the larger part of the country in states and population. And the Confederacy lost. I cannot understand to this day why the lost cause view of the Civil War, the one that shows the South to have been representative of our founding, of having the moral high ground, is so embraced by the soi disant civil rights activists of our time. I have long said, judgments by race carry the stench of Nuremberg and have no place in a country that went to war, in part to defeat the ethos and ethics of Nuremberg 
and the country that erected that ethos and set of ethics. So, to John Roberts and the majority's decision today, I'm going to yield much of the rest of my commentary by reading from the decision and his opinion. He writes, Gaining admission to Harvard is no easy feat. It can depend on having excellent grades, glowing recommendation letters, or overcoming significant adversity. Up until today, it could also depend on your race. In the wake of the Civil War, Congress proposed and the states ratified the 14th Amendment, providing that no state shall deny to any person the equal protection of the laws. To its proponents, the Equal Protection Clause represented a foundational principle, the absolute equality of all citizens of the United States politically and civilly before their own laws. That was a statement and a direct quote from the, the, the author of the 14th Amendment, Representative Bingham. The Constitution, they were determined, quote, should not permit any distinctions of law based on race or color because any law which operates upon one man should operate equally upon all. Close quote. Back to Roberts. As soon-to-be President James Garfield observed, the 14th Amendment would, quote, hold over every American citizen without regard to color the protecting shield of law, close quote. And in so doing, said Senator Jacob Howard of Michigan at the time, the amendment would, quote, give to the humblest, the poorest, the most despised of the races, the same rights and the same protection before the law as it gives to the most powerful, the most wealthy or the most haughty. For without the principle of justice, there is no Republican government and none that is really worth maintaining, close quote. Back to Roberts. Eliminating racial discrimination means eliminating all of it. May I repeat that? Eliminating racial discrimination means eliminating all of it. And the Equal Protection Clause we have accordingly held applies without regard to any differences of race, color, or of nationality. It is universal in its application. For the guarantee of equal protection cannot mean one thing when applied to one individual and something else when applied to a person of another color. If both are not accorded the same protection, then it simply cannot be described as equal. Distinctions between citizens solely because of their ancestry are by their very nature odious to a free people whose institutions are founded upon the doctrine of equality. Our cases have stressed, he writes, that an individual's race may never be used against him in the admissions processes. Here, however, the First Circuit found that Harvard's consideration of race has led to an 11.1% decrease in the number of Asian Americans admitted to Harvard. The point of the admissions programs is that there is an inherent benefit in race, qua race, in race for race, race's sake. Harvard admits as much. Harvard's admissions process rests on the pernicious stereotype that, quote, a black student can usually bring something that a white person cannot offer, close quote. That's from Harvard's brief. UNC is much the same. It argues in its brief that race, quote, in itself says something about who you are, close quote. We have time and again forcefully rejected the notion that government actors may intentionally allocate preference to those who may have little in common with one another but the color of their skin. The entire point of the Equal Protection Clause, Roberts goes on, is that treating someone differently because of their skin color 
is not like treating them differently because they are from a city or from a suburb or because they play the violin poorly or well. One of the principal reasons race is treated as a forbidden classification is that it demeans the dignity and worth of a person to be judged by ancestry instead of by his or her own merit and essential qualities. But when a university admits students on the basis of race, it engages in the offensive and demeaning assumption that students of a particular race because of their race think alike, at the very least alike in the sense of being different from non-minority students. In doing so, the university furthers stereotypes that treat individuals as the product of their race, evaluating their thoughts and efforts, their very worth as citizens, according to a criterion barred to the government by history and the Constitution. Such stereotyping can only cause continued hurt and injury, contrary as it is to the core purpose of the Equal Protection Clause. Most troubling of all, is what the dissent defends. This is Robert Still. A judiciary that picks winners and losers based on the color of their skin. While the dissent would certainly not permit university programs that discriminated against black and Latino applicants, it is perfectly willing to let the programs here continue. In its view, this court is supposed to tell state actors when they have picked the right race to benefit. Separate but equal is inherently unequal said Ketanji Brown. It depends, however, says the dissent. That is a remarkable view of the judicial role, remarkably wrong. Lost in the false pretense of judicial humility that the dissent espouses is a claim to power so radical, so destructive, that it requires a second founding to undo. Justice Harlan knew better one of the dissent's decrees, and he did indeed Quoting again, in view of the Constitution and the eye of the law, there is in this country no superior dominant ruling class of citizens, no caste here. Our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes amongst its citizens. Many universities have gotten away with all of this for too long, Roberts writes, and in doing so, they have concluded wrongly that the touchstone of an individual's identity is not challenges bested, skills built, or lessons learned, but the color of their skin. Our constitutional history does not tolerate that choice. Those were the excerpts I took as most important from the decision. That was John Roberts. Clarence Thomas wrote a concurring opinion, which is a tour de force of American history, and, as he writes, an originalist defense of the colorblind Constitution. I would suggest this 4th of July, everyone in earshot read it and read it to their children. It will undo a lot of what William Buckley once called junk thought. I'll close by saying God bless and God save this honorable court and its decision today. I'm Seth Liebson, 602 We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602 508 960 Alan's in Phoenix. Hello, Alan. Hi, Seth. How, How are, are you? I'm fine. It's a beautiful day here in 108 
Is it 108 outside? I don't know. They keep my person. they keep my studio so cold in here. You could hang meat. Ah, <laughs> uh, the Constitution. That's a beautiful piece of documentary work, but they uh, they've left out the first one. You know, the Article of the First. The actual First Amendment to the Constitution was about uh, representation and the formula for representation. And we really need to get that one ratified to make sure that the House of Representatives doesn't get stuck in the stupid 435 for another 100 years. You're going to just have to fill out a little more with me what you're talking about. I'm, I'm just not following you, and I apologize. Um, the original, the, the, when, the, when, when, the, when the amendments to the Constitution went out, there were actually 13 of them. And they weren't in the order that they are now because the the actual the first amendment of the constitution was actually the third right correct the first the first amendment whenever the people say it was yeah right okay right it's actually the third right um, the first one was actually uh, uh, to do with representation because they knew the people need to be represented mm-hmm, so it was mm-hmm, the formula mm-hmm, for representation and uh, supposedly it didn't pass supposedly Connecticut didn't ratify it as such so that it didn't pass at the time but it's still unsure on that because if they did do that then if we, if we could go back and get that ratified, then we could nullify the Permanent, uh, Permanent Apportionment Act of 29, which set the House at 435, which is unconstitutional, because we're not getting represented anymore. We're getting, you know, when you have 435 and, and 350 million people, what happens is a few radicals can get in there and, and do things that they're not supposed to, whereas if you have 1,500, 1,600 representatives like we should have, then you get natural uh, diversity, inclusion, and equity. Uh, just because of having smaller districts and and people are represented better, mm-hmm. and uh, and then we get rid of the Seventeenth uh, Amendment, which took uh, the states' rights away by having senators elected by the populace right. instead of out of the state house. Right. And doing those two things, we could we could radically get rid of the crapola that that infects our infests our, our politics. Mm. Because then Senate races wouldn't cost twenty million dollars, and right. we'd get carpetbaggers like Hillary Clinton in the bags showing up. And uh, and Senate and House races would be much smaller, and you know you're talking seventy five thousand people, and and then you'd be really accountable, and it'd be amazing how much different. The- I have been I have been long aware of the efforts to return the Senate elections back to the legislature. Um, I have not been as aware of the other one, the apportionment issue that you, that you're mentioning. Are you part of an effort that's uh, working on that? Oh, I was in the past. You know, when I when I in fact. Uh, when I was running before, as I thought about jumping in the Senate race in AP, I, I was talking about it, uh-huh. and even the governor's race. I'm about to jump. I tried. I left. I had a. I've been an independent for 29 years. I left the Republican Party, but I just went back. I re-registered because they need help in the Senate race. They have nobody to run, and nobody's smart enough at it. Run against people. Yeah. And that's and I talk about it all the time about the Apportionment Act. People do not understand that the census is a fraud because we don't use it correctly anymore. Mm-hmm. To, yeah. you, you account for the people, then you reapportion, then you redistribute. They've left yeah. out the reapportionment part. They've mm-hmm. stopped reapportioning. They left it at 435, and it, it, it's criminal. What, uh, what, I'm curious, what, remind me, I, we've been through this once before, but I forgot. What was the issue over which you left the Republican Party or set of issues? Um, well, when I went when when Jane Hull was going to be, I went to the Republican Party to to run for governor, and they're like, they didn't want young and smart. They didn't know who I was. They didn't care. They didn't care. I've never given anybody who'd you volunteer for? Who'd you give to? No, I'm new to this, guys. Here's what I'm talking about. Read my. I, I gave him a 40 page document of all the stuff I've gone through. The budget. Now nah, we don't care. We don't know you. We're status quo. It's okay. Good. 
they, they didn't encourage me to do anything else. Okay. Just, we don't care. Okay, right. If you don't care, All then right. I don't care. I, okay. <laughs> right. You know, and the party hasn't changed. We've had the same uh, individuals who are very structure you did have an interestingly in the governor's race you did have uh, those two other candidates though who did come from non-political backgrounds uh, one I'm trying to remember one was uh, one was a cook uh, right a chef a gourmet cook and chef uh, Paula was her name something like that and then oh, you had and then you had the electrician yeah yeah. 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 yeah 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 they just they just yeah. didn't catch on they just didn't catch on um, but you know it's it's also just, you know, a thought, and I don't know, call it elitist if you want, but a thought might be if your first run in a public forum for public office is the highest office you can possibly seek, governor or senator, and people aren't, you know, so sure about you, as you put it, or don't know where you're coming from or who you are, you might consider, you know, there are races – might be a little bit smarter to start your political career with that really do need you. Uh, our state legislature, for example, is hanging on by a thread in both houses by by a one one vote majority. You may consider or want to consider working either to increase that majority or entering politics at that level. It's, you know, it's hard to run for an office like U.S. Senate or governor. It's just hard for any number of reasons if you haven't had any interaction in the public sphere before. You have to run actually in what's known as a statewide race. And you have to have a bit of a record or at least a bit of a public uh, persona or set of accomplishments that, you know, starting at the state legislature level would help build. It's it's just simply a thought. Take it or leave it for what it's worth. But, you know, unless you have such a huge personality instead of other accomplishments, like, let's say, a Ross Perot or a Donald Trump, um, it's kind of it's it's kind of hard to think that the highest office that possibly exists will be your first office. And, you know, if you need evidence that you can do that much as a state legislature, state legislator, um, just look at Barack Obama. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. One of the interesting lefty talking points, liberal media talking points that you're seeing from Democratic senators and Vice President Kamala Harris and others is that um, – the the Supreme Court overturned longstanding precedents. It didn't, actually. Um, not if you followed the trajectory of race-based programs and race-based programs, particularly in education. But once this notion that a Supreme Court case or even a line of cases or series of cases building a precedent shan't ever be revisited or overturned. Certainly, we would have never had Brown versus Board of Education if that theory applied. Are you telling me there aren't 
Supreme Court cases that they want to overturn? Plessy versus Ferguson and Dred Scott should have been left standing. Buck v. Bell, tolerating forced sterilization, should have been left standing. Korematsu, justifying internment, should have been left standing as good law. Watch out for these clever-sounding arguments that upon just the lightest of scrutiny or consideration— don't hold any water whatsoever. I'd like to play this for you. ABC News had a special report today upon the announcement of this decision and brought on a student entering Brown University. He's going to be an incoming freshman at Brown. He's an Asian-American student simply for his thoughts. It's a hell of an interview. I think that this whole business, when we're deciding based on race, at least as a factor, that sort of assumes that all people of a certain race are sort of monolithic, that minorities are monolithic. And I know at least for Asian Americans, sort of the way that we're perceived is hardworking, no charisma, no character. And and you see that in those in, in the Harvard case, you'll see that um, that's how they view Asian American students. They see us sort of as bland and sort of lacking character. And I think that that's sort of what happens to all minority groups when you view us first and foremost as a certain race and then just look at individual characteristics that we have later. I think we should flip that around and view our individual characteristics regardless of what race we are first and foremost. And I think that's, that's the most appropriate way to, to do this. Um, because there, again, you can look at recommendation letters. You can look at, um, there's so many other things that you can look at. And I know that Bumi was mentioning sort of this holistic admissions process. In that process, you have so much data. You have access to your parents' income, for instance, if you might need financial aid. You have access to information about the school district that you g- grew up in. And I think that information actually gives you knowledge of the student situation and sort of what advantages or disadvantages that you might have in life because any student of any race at an underfunded school district won't necessarily have the same opportunities that somebody at a very highly funded school district and so by looking at what opportunities they had available and how they were able to make the most of that is not something that requires you to look at race when you can actually pinpoint that the experiences that a student might have had um, through other factors that don't involve race. He's making a very interesting point that the use of race is not only, as Thurgood Marshall said, evil, invidious, and arbitrary. Boy, is it ever arbitrary. It's also cheap. It's the cheap way to evaluate someone, which requires an evaluation almost by definition based on prejudice. It's a cheap evaluation based on prejudice. We've forgotten that word around here prejudice, prejudging someone based on their racial characteristics. Michael Yeoman, an old con law expert and professor many years, used to say whenever someone proposes an idea that raises your eyebrow a little bit, he used to joke, now say it in German. I can't think of a better example of the callback to the ethos and ethics, as I said, of Nuremberg, than to use race as a criteria to award benefits or take away benefits, to replace it in front of, to, re, to put it in front of, or replace it with criteria of the merit of the individual, of the individual, of seeing someone as an individual. 
the use of race cheapens humanity, humanhood, and individuality. It's a cheap way of going about things, and it is prejudiced. You think about the economy, the bank failures, the stock market volatility, the inflation, the talk of a possible recession, and you ask where to go to invest. Why Refi has an answer. They have an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return, and it's not correlated to the stock market or the Federal Reserve. It's a portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like, with no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees in this collateralized and secure portfolio from Why Refi, which is based here locally. They're headquartered here, and I encourage you to stop by their offices. They're on Scottsdale Road in the 101. I've been there. You won't get a sales pitch. No one's going to ask you to sign a thing. And when you meet with the team at Why Refi, you'll see why I trust them and like them so much, and you can too. Why Refi is a due diligence approved firm. You can earn up to a ten and a quarter percent rate of return. That's right, a ten and a quarter percent fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest the letter Y then R E F Y dot com, or give them a call at eight 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 Y Refi thirty four eight 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 Y Refi thirty four. Many of you had asked me to um, go over another case that uh, came down this week, the Moore case, having to do with uh, having to do with. Uh, the Constitution's application to states drawing of uh, of uh, legislative districts. It's an important case, and uh, we'll have Brett Johnson on at the top of the next hour to discuss it. Um, but if you wanted to know why we're doing that case with him rather than today's Harvard and North Carolina cases, uh, it's because you had asked a lot of that, and I was th- thinking I could I could handle the Harvard and North Carolina cases. On my own, I, I I'm just not as good at that that other line of th- that other line of uh, law. I'm just not. Brett's an expert in it. Um, David, uh, do you have a pen today, or did you just decide to torture me with something noisy all day? Please I, tell me that that is not in place of your pen. It might be. <laughs> I don't have a pen on today. I because a pen would have been quiet. I, a pen would have been quiet. Would yeah. not be giving me. It, the it shakes or anxiety. Yes, yeah. This one. This well, one. All right. Tell the audience what you're doing to torture me all day with. Go well, ahead. I, I think it was. Anyone asked. ever see the Seinfeld where the guy in the office was walking around with the tic tacs all day long? I guess Elaine gave them to him because he had halitosis or something. But it just was a noise that was driving Jay Peterman crazy. That that's a bit of the scenario of what I'm going through today with Young David. Did it sound anything like this? You're going to send me through the roof. Tell the audience what it is. <laughs> I think it was last Friday we talked about um, – you asked me if I had anything for Dick Nixon in 1962. Yeah. And I brought that uh, yesterday. I think yep. it was. I had my uh, – Something Nixon nice and placid and quiet yep. and perfect, yes. But I mentioned I had a clicker. Mm-hmm. And so today I've brought the clicker. And I was actually wrong. It's from 1960. There's a union bug on the back. It's from the RNC in Chicago in 1960. And uh, – it says click with Dick, and I guess this would have taken place during the convention. Yeah, and this is uh, this means more to me because someone gave this to oh, me. Oh, that I is did nice. Not, uh, seek this particular piece. That is of, nice. Uh, you know, you know what? Out. You know a really nice way to to handle such an important, emotionally important memento. 
don't don't overuse it. Don't don't take it. To yeah, the yeah. I would I would keep it as in, in as pristine shape you can to maintain its integrity, and that means um, maybe 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 under a jar at home is a good place for it, just to maintain <laughs> well, because it means so much to you. You know. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. Means so much to me. Yeah. It's really cool. It's a it's a shaped almost like a. Um, a pick for a guitar. Great. And uh, you put the palm. Yeah. You put it in your palm. I think we know how a clicker works, David. Oh, uh, okay. All right. Okay. Well, I, I, I don't think we need the remedial education. Yeah. The clicker. Okay. Uh, uh, <clears throat> yes. Um, a lot of stupid things will be said today. One of them was by our president and vice president. The president was asked if this was a rogue Supreme Court. He said it's not a normal Supreme Court. You know, this again from the man who is trying to protect the institutions or said he would maintain the integrity and restore faith in our institutions. He, as many of the Democrats have now uh, for about a year and a half, just gone off on a tear against the Supreme Court, starting with the non-enforcement of the law against threatening Supreme Court justices, um, starting with not protecting them. Uh, starting with not even making one mention at all that one of them had an assassination attempt against him. Uh, n- none of that. None of that. And today, of course, the Supreme Court – last time on, 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 on the Dobbs decision, the Supreme Court was illegitimate, according to the Democrats. Today, it's not normal. Uh, good, good way to build faith in, in your institutions. Good way to build faith in your government. Good way to be an adult and understand that – Sometimes jurisprudence shouldn't be outcome-oriented. In fact, it never should be. And just because your interpretation didn't win the order of the day does not make the institution illegitimate any more than losing an election means the country or your fellow countrymen are illegitimate. You know, living in a republic, democracy, whatever you want to call this experiment, means that you're not going to win every case, but you abide by the decisions whether you win or lose, particularly if you lose. That's the basis of equality and the social contract, which I'm going to talk about with Brett Johnson a little bit more as well. Kamala Harris today says today's Supreme Court decision in Students versus Fair Admissions v. Harvard is a step backward for our nation. It rolls back long-established precedent and will make it more difficult for students from underrepresented backgrounds to have access to opportunities that will help them fulfill their full potential. Why? Why? I want to know why these institutions are not going to afford students with underrepresented backgrounds access to their schools. Why? Whose decision is that? Whose decision is that? And what is this nonsense about rolling back long-established precedent? It is not. We can argue over the long-established precedent, but it is not long-established precedent. And this notion of rolling back and making it more difficult as a result, um, no. It says something about these institutions, or it says something about our K-12, through our elementary and secondary education system, if we are not able to prepare students on a non-racial basis to achieve as high as every other member of any other race. It says something terrible about our K-12 through education system, doesn't it? If there is a segment of our population based on race or based on any other categorization you want that does not allow them to succeed and achieve, that's where the work should be done and not 
based on dint of the fact that they were born into one skin color or another, or one ethnicity or another. You know, there's a tremendously important philosophical understanding to this that maybe young people don't understand anymore. And um, I think we need to spend some time explaining it. We're back, as George Orwell said, to a point where the first task of the intelligent is to explain the obvious. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Hello, this is Jim Rockford. I'm not in right now at the tone. Leave your name and number. I'll get back to you. Beep. Hi, this is Angel, right? Isn't that how it goes? Well done, young <laughs> David. Yeah, you were like bringing that. to my attention um, old school conservatism. Indeed. For, yeah, right? From the likes of Ron DeSantis on Wednesday. Let's see if we can get a little audio here. In the past, we've talked about closing the Department of Education. Would you do that? So we would do education... We would do commerce, we do energy, and we would do IRS. And so if Congress will work with me on doing that, we'll be able to reduce uh, the, the size and scope of government. But what I'm also going to do, Martha, is be prepared. If Congress won't go that far, I'm going to use those agencies to push back against woke ideology and against the leftism that we see. Yeah, there he goes. Now, you thought that that sounded eerily like another Republican or a previous Republican president. Indeed, that's an old school callback. I pulled some audio from September 24th, 1981, for President Reagan's address to the nation on his program for economic recovery from the Oval Office. Take a listen to this. We propose to dismantle two cabinet departments, energy and education. Both secretaries are wholly in accord with this. Some of the activities in both of these departments will, of course, be continued either independently or in other areas of government. There's only one way to shrink the size and cost of big government, and that is by eliminating agencies that are not needed and are getting in the way of a solution. Now, we don't need an energy department to solve our basic energy problem. As long as we let the forces of the marketplace work without undue interference, the ingenuity of consumers, business, producers, and inventors will do that for us. Similarly, education is the principal responsibility of local school systems, teachers, parents, citizen boards, and state governments. By eliminating the Department of Education less than two years after it was created, we can not only reduce the budget, but ensure that local needs and preferences, rather than the wishes of Washington, determine the education of our children. That's an old-school conservative talking point right there. It's been a long time since we've had somebody in government talk about shrinking it. And I haven't picked my horse in this race yet, but uh, it's definitely something to think about. Shrink it. Let's eliminate it. He's absolutely right about the Department of Energy. It was created in 1977. Did we not have energy before 1977? The Department of Education created roughly in 1979. And a great question to ask is, okay, has education gotten better in America since 1979? Or worse, to ask the question is to answer it. Now, what Ron DeSantis said was, if we can't eliminate it, we're going to do everything we can to get rid of the woke within it, which is what Reagan had to ultimately come to with William Bennett. He said, I I don't want this department, but if you can make some sense out of it. And um, that's what they tried to do, and that's what they did, and either get rid of it or put in a secretary like William Bennett to make sense of it. That's what I say. Well done, David. Good catch, good eye, good ear. Thank you, brother. We will be right back. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.